You know, I'm not much of a museum person. I'll tell you why. Because museums always are in cities. And I am not much of a city person only because I find my anxiety goes up in cities. And even though I have a family that lives in a big city that's here right now, they've never taken me to a museum. And uh, they really don't love me. But I would like to get to more museums. And I would tell you about a museum in Chicago. And this was some years ago. It was the Natural History Museum in Chicago. And they had a checkerboard display. Now, I want you to really hear this. See if you can visualize this in your mind. This checkerboard display had 64 squares on it. And starting with the first box was one grain of wheat. And they doubled that for every consecutive box. So then, the second box had two, the third box had four, the fifth box, eight, then 16, then 32, on and on. Until they couldn't fit any more seeds of grain on one of those checkerboard boxes. And there was a question, it was the display, it was an electronic display, it flashed a question. And the question was literally this, I'm quoting, at this rate of doubling each successive square, how much would you have on the checkerboard by the 64th square? And you would push a button and it would give you the answer. And the answer is, to my surprise, one sextillion. That's a really big number. But they made it simple because they explained that it would be enough grain in one sextillion seeds of grain or grains of wheat to cover the entire subcontinent of India 50 feet deep by the 64th square, just simply doubling it. That's 1,000 years worth of the world's rice harvest. Well, if you did the same thing with pennies, let me give you a perspective. If you did the same thing with pennies and you stacked them one sextillion high, the 64th square, it would reach over 2,013 light years into space. That's amazing to me. Or there would be enough pennies to fill Lake Superior if you took out all of the spaces because the pennies are round. You put them next to each other. There's space. If you took out all the spaces, you could fill up Lake Superior 36 times. Just doubling all the way from the first square to the 64th. And it leads me to share this from Walter Henriksen. He made a really interesting quote. He said, the world is multiplying, the world population is multiplying while the church is merely adding. Addition, he said, can never keep pace with multiplication. Now, let me read that again, and I know you're seeing it. The world is multiplying while the church is merely adding. Addition can never keep pace with multiplication. You know, I said two weeks ago that God's favorite math in the Bible seems to be multiplication. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the pages of Scripture. 
And we are in a series right now, this is the third of four weeks in this series, where we're laying out for you where our church is heading. So this is a lot different than the way that I normally preach. Normally I preach expositionally. This is not expositional preaching today, for sure. It's a little bit different. What we're learning is, and what we're looking at, is really where we're heading as a church, where we are heading as a church, by God, by what we believe is God's direction. And tonight, or today, is going to actually represent a shift. So far, it's only been fine-tuning what we do here, and some major fine-tuning. I hope you've seen the last two sermons. But today represents a pretty big shift. And let me take you back 10 years ago. Back in 2012, we shifted Cornerstone Church to become a multi-siting church, which has been exciting. It's been very exciting, but it's been very challenging as well. And here are some of the weaknesses of a multi-siting model. It tends to limit the uniqueness of our campuses. The sermons are the same for both, almost always. Often, the same worship team goes back and forth. So it really doesn't matter which service you go. If you can't go Saturday night, you go Sunday morning. If you've got something Sunday morning, just simply go Saturday night. March Street can easily go to 2nd Street. You're going to get the same experience. So it actually has slowed down developing the uniqueness of the campuses, and which also impedes developing community. It's an obstacle to developing community. I mean, this might be your service, or you may be watching this online and occasionally come to church. You're not able to really develop into the community, nor can you help us develop the community that we wanted on the campuses. So there are some drawbacks to multi-siting. It's also not leveraged the full gifts of the leadership team at each campus. It keeps them primarily in the shepherding role, but not a church-leading, church-shaping role. We have one board overseeing all campuses, one budget, and one lead pastor preaching in almost every sermon. So these and other reasons make multiplying campuses very different than multiplying churches. And there is the shift that we are making. And I want to explain a little bit of the context of why we're doing that. So our church, where we're heading, is actually not new in our minds. It actually goes back 19 years ago to where this was first birthed. Uh, it was in 2003 that I was sent by our board. I was not the lead pastor at that time. They sent me, however, because I told them about a church up in Manlius, New York, that was doing something that was incredibly exciting. They were multiplying churches in a family style. And it birthed in me, when I went up there and I came back, a desire to plant churches in the most organic family style possible. Last August, the elders asked me to clarify where I believed God was leading our church. I'll be very candid with you. I didn't know if the Lord still had me here at this church. I knew some difficult times were coming, and I thought maybe, maybe God's moving me out, and that is to alleviate what I knew was going to happen. So I began to pray. I invited the elders to pray with me uh, back in August. Is it time for me to go? I've been here 25 years. I had a church in High Point, North Carolina, 20 minutes from my wife's 
mother and her family that was wanting to candidate me. And I thought, well, maybe this is the Lord's hand. We prayed about that quite a while. We fasted. We talked endlessly, it seemed. And they finally asked me to come in and clarify what the vision that God gave me for Cornerstone was. And so I did. I had a 38-page vision document. I walked through it with them. That was a very long meeting, as you can imagine. And I walked through it with them because that's where I believed if I was going to be here, this is where God is leading our church. This is where I would be leading our church. And it was an adjusted vision away from multi-siting to multi-planting, among a lot of other things, which I've been peppering into this series. What I did not know, what I did not know in August, was that at the same time God was birthing this vision in me and affirming it and the, the elders of our church, at the very same time, I discovered almost through happenstance that our district, I'll tell you about that in a moment, that our district and our entire denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, was going in the exact same precise direction. I had no idea about that until I stumbled upon that in late August, early September of this past year. And I want to show you just a little bit of where we're heading as a denomination and as a district. You're going to hear a short video by the name of Tony Balsamo, who is one of our two superintendents of the Eastern District, or what we now call it EFCA East. Watch this video of Tony. We are excited about what the Lord is doing in our district. Uh, my name is Tony Balsamo. I'm the director of multiplication for the Eastern District. And I want to invite you to come and join the movement. I pastor a church on Long Island. We started this thing about 10, 11 years ago. And our goal was to multiply integrity churches. That's the name of our church. Integrity churches all over Long Island. Literally to start a movement here on the island. And I woke up one day and I realized, you know what? We're already a part of a vibrant movement, a, part, a movement that has resources, a movement that has people, and a movement that has a target audience of over 43 million people that make up all the way from Virginia to New York. I want to encourage you to come and be a part of this. There's been a lot of talk about multiplication and what that means, and, and we really want to encourage you by saying, you know, every church can be a part of multiplication. Whether you're a church of 30 or 3,000, we believe that God's plan for the church is to multiply. We're not pushing any particular model or theory. What we are promoting is the biblical mandate to go and make disciples. And what we're doing as a district is we're putting systems in place to help our churches begin that process of multiplication. We have just solidified a process where we are able to partner with planters, bringing them from the conception phase of their church plant all the way through the launch, which will include assessments and training and resources and equipping and a community of believers and planters that'll help you along the way. We're committed to making your plant succeed to the glory of God because we believe God's heart is in church planting today. And there's a lot of people in our district that need to hear the gospel message through you. And so we're here to serve you, to stand with you, and to work alongside you in this movement called the Eastern District. Come on and join us. 
All right, now you heard him mention the Eastern District. Let me tell you, if you've not been through membership classes, you may not know this. The Evangelical Free Church of America, by the way, they are establishing churches around the globe. But here in the United States, there are 17 districts. The district that we are part of, EFCA East, formerly called the Eastern District, spans what Tony said, all the way from Connecticut down to New York, 43 million people. And what the EFCA is doing and what the EFCA East is really, I think, at the vanguard or at the point of really doing is multiplication. And part of that is multiplying churches. Now, all of this has been introduction. Do not be afraid. Do not fear, Gabriel said. You will not be here until 10 o'clock, all right? So we're going to get moving through this message. Now we get in the Word of God. So get your Bibles open. Let me walk you through a little bit of Acts to give you a little bit of scriptural underpinning for what's been in our leadership's heart. And then I'm going to have you stand at one particular point while we read the Word of God. We'll bring honor to it. And then I'm going to show you nuts and bolts a little bit more how we are going to go forward into multi-planting. So let me open up into Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We've been in this Acts series for a long time. Um, so you're very familiar if you've been at our church for a while with Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And here's what the Word of God says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 120 people were in that upper room in Jerusalem. 120 it just days later, just days later, this is only possible by God's power. Days later, they numbered 5,000 men plus women and children. 120 days later, the power of God inflamed literally with the Spirit of God, those 120 men and women, they came out with the power and the desire to be a witness of Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. They were not theologians. They were spirit-filled Christians. And the church began to grow so fast that finally Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, stops giving numbers. He could not keep up with it. He tried. He hung in there for a while. You got to give props to Luke, but he gave up after a while. He just could not keep up with what God's Spirit was doing in growing and multiplying worshipers, disciples, and churches. Now, clearly, clearly, the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, I'm going to say it again, the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, moved the people of God to witness of the Son of God. Now, that right there is mission, it's when the Word of God, powered by the Spirit of God, moves the people of God to witness of the Son of God, and the number of believers were multiplied. Now, can you fast forward to Acts chapter 6? Look at verse 7. Now, let's all look at verse 7 of Acts chapter 6, whether you're older or younger. And I like to tell parents this. You, you, you whisper, you talk to your children. Get it down on their level. 
Because sometimes I'm not so good at that, or sometimes that's not even really easily done from the pulpit. But when you know you can explain it better, feel free to whisper to them, here's what he just said, here's what he just meant. The Word of God says this in Acts 6, 7, the Word of God continued to increase. Remember, we looked at that back in that sermon. Very interesting way of saying that. The Word of God continued to increase its power, its effectiveness, its reach is actually what you want to know. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So a lot of the religious people who thought that they were right with God had their eyes open to find out they're really not right with God. And the word of God's power, empowered by the Spirit of God, given through the people of God, opened up these religious people's eyes so that they could become children of God. That's the way it works when we witness of Jesus Christ. It is powerful. But while all this was happening... This massive, multiplying increase of Christians in Jerusalem, it had not yet broke out. It had not yet broken out of the land of Israel. It had stayed confined in Israel. That's not God's plan. In fact, Acts 1 verse 8, all the way to the ends of the earth. But it all suddenly changed because of this truth. The work that God performs, the devil will try to hinder. There is not too many more truths that you can bank on. I have seen this over and over. Whenever God is beginning a work, it could be in your own life. It could be in one of your children's lives. It could be in your neighbor's life. It could be in this church's life. It could be in your community's life or your school's life or your work's life. Whatever God begins to do, the devil will try to hinder. You can bank on that. We've seen it happen here at Cornerstone, and the enemy will never stop trying. By the way, listen, I'm going to just let you in on a secret. There will never be an end to the enemy's opposition of this church. Never. Now, if I quit preaching the gospel, if I do what so many mainline churches do, they read a verse of scripture, they literally do this, close the Bible, and then they put it under here, and then they wax narrative and eloquent. If I did that, Oh, we would have a lot smoother waters. If you bring the word of God and the spirit of God to exalt the son of God, you will have opposition. The enemy will try to hinder you. That is as true in your family as it is in your church. Persecution broke out against the early church in Jerusalem. The believers were scattered, many of them fleeing outside of Israel. It was not safe in Israel. Stephen was stoned to death, and it launched an explosion of persecution. But I want you to remember the second part of what I just quoted you a moment ago. The devil will never succeed in thwarting the plans of God. Now, I want you to hear that, and I would encourage you to write it down. It's so brief, you can remember it. The devil will never succeed in thwarting the plans of God. It may seem like he will, but he cannot. He cannot, not in your family, not in your life, not in your church. Do you believe that? You must believe that, or you're gonna be rocked to and fro in the storms of life. 
For as the early church scattered, and here's the plan of God, they're scattering, they're fleeing Jerusalem. What are they doing? They're dropping the seeds of the gospel as they went. And where those seeds landed, they brought forth fruit. Can you look at Acts 8, verse 4? Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, let me add one more part of this. The devil will never succeed in thwarting the plans of God. Now, Christian, I want you to hear this. You and I must be obedient. They left in haste. They scattered all different directions. But what did they do? They preached the word. That just simply means, not from a pulpit, they just told people about Jesus. They told people about what God had done through his son. They told people about the day of Pentecost. They told people about the miracles that had broken out. They told people about the Old Testament, how it had already foretold what was going to happen. They went about telling the word of God. And Philip was one of them who went to the city of Samaria. Look at verse 5, Acts chapter 8. And proclaimed to them the Christ, verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. Now, I told you earlier, I'm really not much of a city person. You must understand why. Because I grew up in central New York in a farm town of 600 people. There's literally never been and still isn't, and I don't believe ever will be, a stoplight. There's the four corners and there's hills, and there's yards with broken lawn mowers, okay? That's where I grew up. That's where I'm most comfortable. That's where I hope to be and die one day, right? Right under a broken, rusty mower. All right, that was a little weird. <laughs> but when God does something in his church, in the city, whether it's Easton of 27,900, soon to have 1,000 more because they're building 600 units of residential. Re uh, whether it's in Easton, New York City, Philadelphia, Chicago, Boston, it doesn't really matter. Listen, where the church rises up, the Bible promises the city will be blessed. Why? Because of the righteous in it, the church. But the church must be alive. The church must be alive. So there was much joy in that city, verse 8. Now all of, all of these new believers inside and now outside Israel began to gather together in churches, and churches were springing up as far away as Antioch of Syria. A long way away. Where is it? It's in, well, it's modern western Turkey. Uh, well, that's not where it is, actually. I'm sorry. From there, I got a little ahead of myself, from Antioch, the missionaries, Paul and Barnabas notably, went up into modern western Turkey to this region called Galatia. And what did they do? They're on their first missionary trip. And what they did was they multiplied worshipers, disciples, and churches all over Asia Minor. That's what that area was called. And all over the Roman Empire and beyond to the known and settled world. All of a sudden, churches are started everywhere. Now, 
There's always a cynic in church. I actually don't blame you. You have some reasons for your cynicism, if this is you. And you might be saying, well, man, there's churches on every block in America because they can't get along with each other, so they just leave and start a church right next to each other. Right, that, often, that can foster cynicism in any of us. But as I told you last week, when we came down to Easton, 12 churches in Easton were leaving the town, leaving the city. They were either filled with 20 to 30 older people. They could not any longer afford the upkeep of the building and their endowment was dwindling. Or just nobody was coming, including this church before we bought it. They left here and joined a fellow denomination, Methodist denomination in Palmer. That's where they moved to try to bolster even another church that was dwindling. That's what happens all over America right now. I'm going to tell you something I am sure there are exceptions to, but I've not seen them yet. I cannot tell you, friends... Even one thriving mainline church that no longer preaches Christ. I don't know any of them. If this church stops preaching Christ, I will tell you exactly what will happen to it. It will be Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2. Christ will remove his lamp, meaning his glory will depart like it did his temple in Ezekiel. And without the glory of God, without the presence of God, a church must depend on its traditions. And that will not last generationally. What brings a church alive is the presence of God. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, preaching and exalting the Son of God, is what invites his presence among us. And that we live in obedience to what he's doing in our lives. This is what's happening. There are churches all over Asia Minor, all over the Roman Empire, all beyond the Roman Empire, even settling further away. Because when God in increases his people like a flock, he increases churches for them to gather together. Now, I'm going to say that again because I've asked you, and I'm hoping you are, and I'm going to ask you again until you become, until this settles into a habit in your life, okay? Ezekiel 36, 37, 38. We are given, I believe, it's a, it's permission borrowed from Israel because God said to Israel, here's what I will ask you, uh, here's what I will allow you to ask of me. You can go ahead and ask me to increase your people like a flock. But why? So that Cornerstone becomes really well known in the area and we all become famous and people whisper about us in such good ways. That has no bearing on any of our hearts. For Ezekiel 36 goes on, then I will fill the waste cities, and then they will know that I am Yahweh. It's the glory of God in mind. I'm asking you to pray that. Would you pray that every day? God, increase, not just the people here at Cornerstone, increase all the Christ-centered churches in our area with what kind of a flock? Well, you don't need to leave room for imagination because Ezekiel 36 
37 specifically tells you what kind of a flock God invites us to ask. A flock destined for sacrifice. Servants, those who are going to serve their God, love their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves, even their neighbors outside of their church, and maybe even especially So God's increasing his people like a flock. So radically, so multiplicate, multiply, whatever. So many people multiplying them. I don't even know what I was trying to say. That he had to start, they had to start churches for them to gather them in. The Apostle Paul wrote to his missionary partner, Titus. This is now Titus 1.5. It's on the screen. And this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So he's even teaching Titus. He's teaching all of his missionary partners. Start churches, appoint elders, get them healthy, and then move on to the next area and do it all over again. Crete was located in what is now modern Greece. And it seems there was a church in every town that needed elders to shepherd them. So Titus's job was to help them get elders to lead. You see, Paul and all of the apostles would go into a town. They would preach the word of God. The Holy Spirit would empower the gospel to bring people to repentance and belief. These brand new believers would gather together as a church, and Paul and the other apostles would help them establish their servant leaders called elders so that they could be taught and equipped to do what we're asking God to help us to do. You remember, it is to pray, it is to declare the gospel, it's to serve. Worship, the most fundamental way of understanding the word worship in the Bible is the word serve. If you're not serving God, you're not worshiping him. If you're singing songs at church, but you don't serve him during the week, friends, you are not a worshiper of God. So all these Christians would then do the work of witnessing wherever they went and bring more and more new believers into churches and start new churches for them to belong to. It's incredibly exciting to hope and believe that this could happen here today. Isn't that amazing to imagine, to dream, to pray that God might multiply churches today? Well, if he's going to do that, then we believe the way he will goes back to our main text. So let's stand, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. I have mine open to that right now. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. Here's our main text, and it's actually our final text. Now, why are we standing if you're younger here, and you might be wondering, why, is, are we Catholic? Stand and sit, stand and sit. Is it because I can tell some of you are getting drowsy because I'm droning, monologuing, and you're getting a little sleepy, and I'm waking you up? Is that why I'm having you stand? Well, actually, maybe a little. But I'll tell you the better reason I'm having you stand is because, you know what? Young people, we are losing this. Stand in the presence of a woman. 
If you're in a room in a meeting and there's no more chairs left and a lady's standing, guys, get up, give them the chair. You honor them. This is why we ask you guys, take your hat off when you come into a church building, not because it's a legalistic thing. It's a way that we have learned from generations to give honor. Right? You wouldn't go into a state building with a hat on. You wouldn't go into a courtroom with a hat on. If you did, the judge would tell you to take it off. Because it's a way of dishonoring when we leave it on. Now, there's no legalistic injunction here. I'm just simply helping you understand why we stand when we read the main text of the Word of God. We're giving it honor. We're recognizing its authority over us. It's always in authority over us. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. All right, now you sit down and let me just unpack that for maybe even three minutes. And then I'm going to give you nuts and bolts for where we're going. I want you to look at that again. Would you, would you stare at verse 31 for a moment? Because you actually will probably be able to understand a lot more of it than I'm, than I'm going to communicate in these two minutes. Walking in the fear of the Lord means they were serving God, worshiping God wholeheartedly. It doesn't mean that they're constantly afraid of taking a misstep and that God's going to, you know, hit a cosmic smite button, bring calamity in your life. As soon as you get off the path, he's going to whack you with his divine belt. That's not what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. It literally is just a way of saying They worshiped and served God with all their hearts. That's what's so beautiful about it. They were so in awe of God and so astonished with him that it translated with, I want to give you everything. I want you to have all my life. Now think about that for a moment because I am as guilty as you are. Now think about it. Be radically honest. Be ruthlessly transparent with yourself. You know there's an area of your life yet God doesn't have. You're wrestling with it. You're either making changes, you're either going in a direction, you're either doing something that you know, you know deep, deep down in the warp and woof of your soul, it's not right. There's something unsettled. I'll tell you why you know, because you're made in the image of God. There is a consciousness in you. You could try to drown it out, and so many of us are good at that. You could try to push it away. Try to inoculate yourself through frenetic busyness. That's what America does. Or through other kinds of sins. But there is something in you. You've got a lot of you that you're giving to God, but this is hands off from God. That part right here, he is so intrusive. He's coming after it. Not because he hates you. No, you don't understand God if that's what you think. No, it's because he loves you so much. That's keeping you from your joy that he's jealous for you to have. That's keeping you from the life that he wants hungrily for you to have. That's keeping you from your purpose that he created you to have. So as long as you've got an area that you hold off from God so that you're not wholehearted, you're robbing yourself of life. 
Well, I'll tell you what Jonah came to the realization in chapter 2, verse 8. Those who worship worthless idols forfeit the life that could have been theirs. Forfeit the grace that could have been theirs. So whatever you've got over here that you won't give to God and you're angry, you want it, you want it so bad, you're possessing it and you're guarding it from God. Let me tell you, he will not give up until he has this, until he breaks that open and walks you out of that into life. That's what he's doing. And then and only then will you be able to say of you that you are walking in the fear of the Lord. Some of us are stumbling. Some of us keep tripping. Walking in the fear of the Lord. Well, they could do it because why? Here's your, here's your antidote. Here's your help. It's not that, oh my goodness, Pastor Tim really put his finger on this and I'm going to go home tonight and I'm going to make it right. You are doomed to failure. I am too. No, I'll tell you how they could do it. They could do it, look at verse 31, because they were walking daily in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what that means? The Spirit of God was giving them the want to to do what they ought to. The Spirit of God was pouring into them such a desire that when they began to look at what they're keeping from God, what preventing them from wholeheartedness, they began to turn their nose up at it. They began to lose their taste for it. It began to terrify them because they banked their life on that. That's what you do with idols. You actually bank your life on it. And you go through a period of time where you're terrified. I have. I've done it many times where God's spirit begins to walk me out of partial heartedness into increasingly wholeheartedness. I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there by God's grace and glory. But when he does, there's always a terror. There's always an anxiety. I'm going to lose this which had become precious to me. But it's a lie because it's not precious. It won't bring you life. It won't bring you joy. It won't bring you purpose. It robs you of all of them. And God says, I can't put up with it because I love you too much. And so what does he do? He gives you the Holy Spirit. He, lets, he, he gives you the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit begins convicting. The Holy Spirit begins digging. The Holy Spirit begins intruding. And you get that little combative flesh, and you get that war, but I will tell you who's gonna win. It is God. See, this is the church. This is the early church. They're experiencing this. They're walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Look at the result. It, it grammatically is the church or the churches, they multiplied. Not only did the worshipers and the disciples multiply, but the numbers of churches multiplied. And that is exactly what we're praying will happen here. What does that mean? Well, multi-planting will succeed in the same way. We're not adopting. I'm not about to give you a new methodology. I'm not gonna, we're not utilizing some church growth technique that we read about. We're actually wanting to multiply churches the way the early church did. I know that's an incredibly antiquated idea, but it's rather novel. Because now you get the power of God. 
We're going to pray and ask God to increase his people like a flock. We're going to declare the gospel, all of us, not just the pastors and the elders. We're all going to need to learn to declare the gospel to the spiritually dead all around us. And we're going to serve him wholeheartedly, and he will direct us to multiply churches. Now, what does that look like? Well, you can see this diagram. As worshipers and disciples are multiplied, we will need to multiply churches for them to gather together in their unique communities. Why? Because somebody might be thinking, like a friend of mine did 12 years ago, why don't you just become a mega church? You don't need to multiply churches. You could just build the church big enough for all the new believers to come. That friend left our church 12 years ago because he wanted us to become a mega church. Because in his mind, a massive church means a successful church. Some of you have that. You may not even know you have it, but I know some of you have that. That your judgment of how the church is going and doing is how many people are coming. Well, I will at least agree with you as far as this. The church of God ought to be increasing. The church of God is organic. It is dynamic. It never stays the same. It's like you throw a rock in the river, and the river is never the same way twice, okay? So the church ought to be changing. It ought to be growing. It is dynamic. That does not always translate to a single church becoming a mega church. And I'm going to tell you very honestly, that's not our plan. That's not what we want. In fact, we're doing something that's going to mitigate megachurch growth, and that is multi-planting. Multi-planting is when you keep starting new churches. Imagine multiplying churches in a family network that looks very similar to how our families grow. Millions upon millions of parents have experienced that mixture of happiness and sadness as their children grow up and they leave and they get married, they start their own families, they begin new traditions that are unique to their families that weren't the traditions of your family. So imagine, if you would, just you know, what we call right here Second Street Campus, in two to three years, because I think that's my best guess, but I have no idea, two to three years will become its own church. They have their own church name. They have their own board that, they're developed, that they've developed. They have their own budget. They have their own preaching. But they're part of our family network of churches. They have the same DNA, the same vision, yet the way that they carry that vision in this location or where we are up in March Street or where we might be one day in the Slate Belt or maybe up in the Poconos or maybe down in Durham. Listen, wherever we put a church, it will be unique in its own context. The same vision, but carried out unique where you are. Now imagine each one of those churches that we are multi-planting signs what we've already developed called a Cornerstone Multiple Member Church Agreement. It's a binding legal document. Every single church has to put in a percentage of their budget 
into a church multi-planting fund, which works like a dowry used to work, so that when you start a new family, there's a fund that goes along with them to get them financially free, financially viable, so that they can operate without the constraints of debt. Imagine forming a multi-planting team that will manage a church planting fund, which is one reason, by the way, that we've hired Doug Rank as our executive director. He'll be here in early May. Each church in our family network of churches, each one of them, unique in their context, yet part of our family because they've got the same DNA, the same vision, the same mission, but they're entirely independent and autonomous. Now, what's that look like? Well, it looks like this. I won't be the lead pastor overseeing the other pastors. They are responsible along with their leadership teams for their own churches. It's not that they report to me. They report to their leadership team. It looks like this. That while we have a family relationship with them, they're not called cornerstone in any of them. There's only one called Cornerstone. The rest come up with their own names that can carry out their own identity because they're a unique church in an autonomous network called the Family Network. Now, it's interesting because <laughs> i got to be careful with this one. You know, I've been, I've been told the last several months that I'm very arrogant and prideful, and let me tell you, they have no idea how bad I am. They really don't. If they could see my heart the way God would see my heart, they would never come into this church again. And I could actually say the same thing about you. You know that? When you get older in Christ, you see your sin even more clearly. It drives you back over and over to spiritual poverty, the first beatitude. So the ones that call me pride and arrogant have no idea how bad I really can be. I truly can't be that. But the Lord is fighting for humility in my heart. And that humility is, I don't need to be a pastor of a megachurch. My identity is not hooked into that. And I don't need to be the lead pastor over a lot of other churches. My identity is not hooked into that. We've launched a three-month deacon and elder training program. We launched it two weeks ago so that leaders are going to be ready to serve, and they will be ready to, to lead these new churches. So imagine 10 years from now, and I'm going to take you out 10 years, and again, I have no idea the dates, but imagine 10 years from now that we have several churches in our family network of churches, each one of them the same vision, the same mission, yet each of them autonomous, each of them unique, multiplying worshipers, multiplying disciples, and multiplying churches in the way that only God can do. See, every church, if they're going to be a healthy cell, must divide, must multiply. A diseased cell doesn't multiply. There's a thing in psychology that we call enmeshment. Some of you are very familiar with the term, maybe even experientially, but enmeshment is when a parent or at least in a family dynamic, when a parent and a child get stuck 
in the same cell. And that child wants to get out. That child wants to individuate, wants to multiply, wants to leave, but the parent can't let them. So the parent keeps holding on to them, being nurtured by them, subsuming them in their identity. It always brings disease and unhealth and, well, let me give you a modern term, dysfunction, without fail. It's what I did professionally before I became a pastor. We've got to let churches multiply. Now, we're going to be rolling out a lot more communication in the next several months, but let me leave you with this. We really, truly believe God's favorite math is multiplication. Yet, if we are to be successful with the vision that he has given to us, we need to learn to do three difficult things. Here they are. Simplify, shift, and spread. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where we're heading next week in our fourth and final sermon in this series. I hope you're going to be here to hear it. And let me leave you with this. You remember that hourglass diagram that I showed you last week? as we look to multiply worshipers and disciples and churches. And do you remember from three weeks ago or two weeks ago when I asked you to begin praying, which I noted earlier in this message, Ezekiel 36, 37, and 38? If you've not yet begun praying this, would you please do that? Would you please do this? Would you write down the reference, put it on a reminder on your phone? Put a bookmark in your Bible. Put it on a three-by-five card. Put it on your mirror. Put it on your rearview mirror. Whatever, wherever it's going to keep reminding you. And pray daily, God, please increase our people like a flock. Like the flock for sacrifices. Like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they will know that I am the Lord. That's where my identity is hooked. That's what I want more than anything. I hope you want that too. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Lord, for where we're heading, this is robust. This is huge. And it is a change. And some of us, we don't like change, and I'm one of them. But Father, we need to be obedient to where you're heading, where you're taking us, Lord. And I would pray that all of us would be obedient to that. Would you encourage us? Would you help us with this? Would you strengthen us? Would you bring unity to us? Lord, we are all asking right now, Lord, that you would help us to multiply worshipers, multiply disciples, and multiply churches. Lord, you gave Israel permission. I believe we can co-opt that prayer. Lord, increase us like a flock, like a flock of worshipers. Then you're going to fill Easton, Phillipsburg, Regalsville, Bethlehem, Bangor, Windgap, Penargel, Stewartsville, and beyond. And not just at Cornerstone, but at Ebenezer, at Calvary, First Baptist in Peaburg, the Alliance Church in Peaburg, the Bridge Church on Northampton, Forks Community Church in Forks, 
and over and over and over. Fill your Christ-exalting churches that have the lamp of Jesus Christ in them. Fill them so that the people will know that you are the Lord. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.